So we had just moved to new space. So we were out of our little Milk Street office and we had moved up to where we are now in Free Street. And Spinnaker was on the cusp of merging with another local trust company. And I had just had my third child. So we had a lot going on. This is The Day That Changed Everything, a podcast series produced by Maine Biz, Maine's business news source. Every two weeks, we will post an interview with a Maine business leader whose life or business was upended in one day and learn how they navigated their way back. If all great change is preceded by chaos, then this podcast series helps us to make sense of the chaos. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank and Maine Technology Institute, or MTI. Mainers have an unrivaled work ethic, an endless supply of ideas, a boundless energy to create, and the perseverance to not say it's done until it's done better than it was before. Which is why the Maine Technology Institute was created to support, nurture, and invest in those qualities and make Maine a place where ideas and people can thrive. To see how MTI supports innovation, go to maintechnology.org. That's maintechnology.org. I'm Renee Cordes with the Maine Biz Podcast team. Today's guest is Amanda Rand, President and CEO of Spinnaker Trust, a Portland wealth management firm with about $2.5 billion in assets under management. Amanda is here to talk about a serious and unexpected health scare she experienced a little over a decade ago and how that impacted her life and her approach to business leadership. What she went through is also something all women should pay attention to, since it turns out a very high percentage of us are at risk. Let's take a listen. Amanda, uh, welcome to our podcast. So glad to have you with us. Thanks, Renee. Thrilled to be here. So first of all, for listeners not familiar with your company, uh, Spinnaker Trust, can you introduce us, share a few lines about the company and what kind of services you offer? Sure. Thank you. So Spinnaker Trust is a locally based and owned uh, wealth management firm here in Portland, Maine. We manage about two and a half billion dollars for somewhere around 400 to 500 families and institutions. And in addition to that, we have a pretty strong practice acting as an ESOP trustee. So as a trustee for employee stock ownership plans, all of our clients have a tie to Maine somehow, and they, they have, you can trace their, their lineage back somewhere to someone in Maine that they know, but our clients are all over the country and we're a team of about 36, 37 people. And just a, a little quick history. Spinnaker was founded in 2001 by Dick Curran, who was also your predecessor. Is that right? That's right. And my partner now. So Dick is still there. He's working away. We're thrilled to have him. We'll take him as long as we can get him. And yeah, so we're relatively young as far as trust companies go, you know, to only be 21 years old. But we've had a lot of both organic growth and growth through a merger in 2012 that has led us to where we are now. And you mentioned trust company. So how is a trust company different from a standard wealth management firm? Oh, thank you for that. So you're, you know, wealth management can come in a variety of different forms. Spinnaker is chartered as a main non-depository bank, which gives us the ability both to manage assets and to do the wealth management side of what we do, but also to act as a trustee, a corporate trustee for both the ESOP plans that I mentioned, but also very importantly for our individual clients who need trustee services for any myriad of reasons that when Dick founded Spinnaker was something that he 
identified very early on was going to be critical to the families, the multi-generational families with whom we work. And so that that is why we're, we're a little bit different than, say, an RIA or a standalone. And the team consists of a combination of financial planners, financial folks, as well as, as lawyers like yourself. So tell That's us right. about that. That's right. So I'm a recovering lawyer <laughs> as a lawyer by, by training as well. We have two other lawyers, excuse me, three other lawyers on staff, both from the fields of trust and estates to income tax to real estate. And then, of course, we have folks that come from the investment side, from the large brokerage houses, from the banks, from the in investment, you know, the fidelities of the world, the Wellingtons. We sort of run the gamut and we have a few CPAs on staff. So, you know, our team is by far the thing I'm most proud of at Spinnaker. You know, the, the amount of expertise that we bring together on our little world headquarters there on Free Street is, is pretty remarkable. And so you mentioned your clients are, are all over, but they all have main ties. So are these are these high net worth individuals and families? Many of them, yes. I mean, we, we, we work with folks, you know, we state our minimum at a million dollars to be a, a wealth management client. We're often bringing in clients that are, you know, in the, just in the beginning stages of of accumulating their wealth. And so they might have less than that at the moment. But yes, these these are folks that, you know, need the professional guidance. They need the financial planning advice. They need, you know, how to advice on how to plan for their kids' college education to their own right. retirement. And then on to even, you know, the most complicated of situations where we're dealing with multi-generational wealth that we need to plan for. And younger, younger clients as well, too, like children of, yeah. of people that you have advised for years. That's right. I mean, I like to say I owe my job to the multi-generational families that we work with because some of, you know, the, the ones that are peers of Dick were saying, hey, who's going to be working with me? You know, <laughs> now those those uh, kids are now, you know, my age in their 40s. And that's why we bring in, you know, the next generation of of advisors that are going to work with, with them as well. So, yes, I mean, our, our clients um, range in age and it's fun, actually, you know, just today, I was able to talk to a member of one generation of this, a certain family, and I will speak to his dad next week. And it's a role we enjoy playing that sort of family repository of financial guidance and knowledge. And it's, you know, one of the most fun things about our job. Great. So speaking of family, that's a, a good segue into a question about your background. So tell us, uh, where were you born? Where did you grow up? So I guess I can say I'm a real Mainer. I was born at Maine Medical Center and my parents were both born in Maine too. I grew up in Falmouth. I'm a complete townie. I live here now in Falmouth with my husband who uh, was my high school sweetheart. And, oh, I love it. <laughs> and our three children. So yeah, I went away to college. I went away to law school. Couldn't wait to get out of Maine for, you know, when I was 18 years old and see somewhere new. And then I couldn't get back here fast enough. You know, it's it's very true. You have to go away sometimes to appreciate what you have. And so you studied history um, in undergraduate at, at Duke University. What drew you to that? I did. I've always loved learning about history and particularly ancient history, you know, learning about the Greeks and the Romans. And that's always been fascinating to me. I also knew somewhat weirdly at an early age that I wanted to go to law school. So how young were you? Probably, you in high, probably in high school. I just... I don't know. Maybe I, I like to argue. I'm not sure what it was exactly. <laughs> and I, I remember from a very young age has always been very drawn to education and and would always say, you know, so-and-so is a lawyer. They have so many opportunities, so many options, so many doors that will open. And that, you know, resonated with me at a young age. So history was a way to do, you know, a lot of reading, which is yeah. 
frankly, the more reading you can do, the more prepped you are for law school. It's all you do in law school, right? <laughs> at least the first year. And you learn how to think, right? So I studied history at Duke. I studied sociology. I took, I took ancient Greek. I took, you know, a myriad of things that were really just, I, I think looking back, we're just training my mind to then move on to law school. And then at law school, like what were some of the, the classes or professors that had the biggest impact on you? I mean, the biggest impact is sitting there, you know, in your first, my first contracts class and we hadn't met the professor and he, he looked right at me and goes, Ms. Van Vacius, what do you think? That's my maiden name. I was like, oh man, like this is getting real. He, he knows my name. He knows where I sit. You know, he looked right at me. He had clearly studied his uh, seating chart. But, you know, I definitely had a few, uh, a few weeks of, oh boy, like I'm in over my head. But, you know, then I, I, I found my way into classes that were, you know, a better fit for me and what I wanted to do with a legal degree. I didn't want to be a litigator. I have right. immense respect and, you know, I'm in awe of what they do, you know, the performance aspect of it, but also the ability to shift on a dime and get, you know, nosedive into different areas of law all the time. But that sort of ant antagonistic setup where your clients even are frankly annoyed that they have to hire you was just not where I wanted to spend my time. So when I then found, you know, my way into tax classes, which I know you're probably thinking, why would that make it more exciting? But that sort of advisory level, being able to work with families, being able to help them reach their goals, being able to help them plan for their kids, whether it's modest of modest means or extensive, it's it just I felt like I finally found my niche. And then, so you figured out in law school what, what area of law you wanted to pursue. So what did you do then after law school? I know you worked for a couple of firms. That's right. So I went, I was a summer associate at a Boston law firm, Ropes and Gray. It's a lot bigger now than it was then. It's thousands of lawyers, I think. Um, when I was there, it was 300 or so, 350, something like that. I summered there and then I spent a year there after law school. I thought I'd, I, I always wanted to get back to Maine, you know, my husband and I knew we wanted to be back in Maine. I thought it would be, you know, three, five years, something like that. So I worked at, at Ropes after law school and I was there about a year when we found out in the same week that I was expecting our first uh, child, our son. And Pierce Atwood in Portland was looking for a trust and estates lawyer. So I thought, you know, if this is my ticket to move home to Portland and do what I like to do, then, then I should probably, I should probably take it. Great. So then then you joined Spinnaker in September uh, 2008. Uh, certainly a precarious time to be joining a financial services company, right? What was that like? Yeah. So I spent six years in Portland practicing both at Pierce Howard and then at a small uh, boutique law firm. And, you know, I knew of Spinnaker. I knew what they were doing. They were, you know, only seven years old at that point. So relatively right. new, but I had heard of Dick and knew what they were building and spoke to him all over the summer of 08 and met everybody else at the firm and thought, yep, this is this is going to be great. I'll be able to do what I love to do. I'll be able to work with families and advise them and get to know them, help them solve problems. And I won't have to bill for my time. It'll be brilliant. And then I start Labor Day of 08 and, you know, Lehman Brothers had collapsed. The market was falling out of bed. And I thought, oh boy, this is, what have I done? You know, here I am. Like, I don't have to build for my time anymore, but when you get billed based, you know, we get fees based on assets under management and the markets collapse and they continue to collapse through, you know, March of 09. It was, it was a bit of a trial by fire, certainly. And I was meeting many of our clients at the time during a very stressful moment for them as well. How was this different from your law practice or was it very similar because you were advising people, but you know, yet it was for a different kind of company. So yeah, I would say, you know, 
many lawyers work at law firms and then they go in-house, you hear about, right? They go in-house at a, yeah. a corporate job somewhere. They'll go work for any number of, of large companies. Uh, for a trust and estates lawyer, the in-house position is what I'm doing. It's working at a place like Spinnaker or okay. any of the other big big banks, right? And so it, it does, you know, my day-to-day is different and that I'm not drafting documents, if you will, and I'm not filing probate papers or that sort of thing, but I'm just constantly meeting with families and assessing, you know, what are, let's look back, what are your goals? Are you reaching them? How can we make this better? How can we help you plan for the future? And, and you know, that's, that's an iterative process. That just, it's not like a one and done conversation. And I mean, it is a very demanding job as well. And you're using both sides of your brain, you know, the, the math and analytics side and the communication and people and compassion side. Yeah, that's, I think that's a very good observation. I think that's what I love uh, the most about my job. It's, you know, the tax side of it and the planning side of it and the problem solving and the puzzling that you have to do with clients to really root out sort of what are their non-negotiables? What are the things that they need to see happen so that they can sleep at night? You know, what, what does that look like? But it's also so much about, you know, being an advisor and counselor, if you will, to these families and being a set of ears and getting to know them and working with them. That's really rewarding stuff. And what was the company like when you started? I mean, you said it was only seven years old at the time. And was it a lot smaller? A lot smaller. Like a startup? It did. I mean, we were in a little space on Milk Street right across from the Crooked Mile. We had, I think, 10 people and two dogs that were there every day. <laughs> Sarah, Sarah Lewis had a schnauzer that used to bite the mailman and oh, gosh. A, a greyhound that would zip up and down the halls in the late afternoon. And, and it was, you know, for me, looking back, it was just an extraordinary opportunity to be involved in everything right from the start, you know. So I did get to learn a lot about how we're managing the money and what goes into, you know, the operational side of what we do and and then being a part of managing the firm, you know, pretty much right from the start was, you know, a wonderful opportunity that I, I probably wouldn't have had it had the firm been around for 100 years at the time. So let's now fast forward to 2011, you know, certainly a day that changed everything. Tell us, first of all, what was going on with Spinnaker at that time? I think the company had just moved and merged with another company. So it was a very busy time. It was a very busy time. So we had just moved to new space. So we were out of our little Milk Street office and we had moved up to where we are now in Free Street. And Spinnaker was on the cusp of merging with another local trust company. And I had just had my third child. So we had a lot going on. And so walking back a little bit to the time that you were on maternity leave, you had two two little ones at home. You had just um, given birth to your third child, as, as you just said, I think uh, a daughter named Athena, right? What Was it a normal pregnancy and child? Yes. Yeah. I mean, well, it was normal pregnancy and she was a couple of weeks early, but all my kids were a little bit early. So nothing crazy. She was born at the end of November and then I took her to her two-week checkup, drove home, handed her to my husband on the couch, turned around, and then the whole room was spinning. So I quickly, you know, I sort of sat down. My husband immediately said, I, I think, are you having a stroke? Because he could see that my face was drooping. He could see my speech was slurred. I think I said, I don't know. At least that's what I thought I said. I'm not sure what he heard. It felt like uh, you were having a dizzy spell. Yes, it felt like it felt like a dizzy spell that, you know, usually that happens for a second and, you know, you come right out of it. 
And right. so I was sort of expecting that to happen and it didn't. And then it sort of felt like I was underwater. You know, he sounded sort of like I was underwater. I couldn't quite hear him. I could hear him, but I couldn't, you know, it was hard to understand. So he called, he immediately called 911, mm -hmm. thankfully, and then immediately called my parents and his mother who live, you know, a half mile one way and a mile and a half the other way. So this was a time when being a townie came in very handy because we had two, we had a nine-year-old and six-year-old that were about to get off the bus from, you know, kindergarten and third grade. And we had a newborn that someone needed to take care of and right. the ambulance was coming. And so, so it would, we were picked up in an ambulance. Yes. And so, you know, I live in my hometown. So the ambulance, the driver that came was someone we went to high school with that was a couple of years behind us and his dad he came first and his dad brought the ambulance. And I remember sitting with him. I never lost consciousness. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, I think you're having a stroke. And I said, I, I, I'm scared. Like, I can't be having a stroke. Like, this can't be, can't be happening. And he said, it's okay. We're going to, we'll, we'll figure it out. When he said that, what, what was going through your mind? I mean, did that come out of, it must have come out of left field. I mean, I just, well, I, I haven't mentioned to this point that my, my husband had actually just the day prior finished treatment for cancer. He had had surgery and he had been having radiation. So he was done with that on the 14th. And then this happened on the 15th. So the, the, the idea that our family could be dealing with another catastrophic medical issue all at the same time was just, you guys, I felt like I had to be on candid camera or something. And so what was going through my head was just we have to fix this. This can't be happening. We need to, we have too many people, too many little people and big people to take care of at the moment. Right. And do you remember anything about the, the journey? I don't remember the, the ambulance drive. No, okay. I, the, the first memory is being at the hospital and being put into the MRIs and the CAT scans. And I remember repeating the birth dates of my three children over and over, their names, their middle names, their birth date, sort of like, okay, if I'm having a stroke, like, can I still use my brain? Do I still know what's going on? Like, can I remember things? So you you were doing this mentally or you were saying these out Mentally, loud? mentally, yeah. Just just testing myself, I guess. And then I remember coming out of that and and just being sure they were going to tell me there was some big tumor or something. And and they said, no, you have, you've dissected an artery, your right carotid artery, and that's led to a clot. And that clot has traveled up to your brain and you've had a stroke. So we can give you clot busting medication. And I'm, and I'm listening to all this, you know, with my husband and my parents and I think my mother-in-law was in there too. And they said, or we are just starting to do a new procedure here at Maine Med that we're studying where we could go up and get the clot. We could go up through your femoral artery and we could grab the clot and take it out. And, you know, you're in that window where that could still be successful. And we said, well, what would you do? <laughs> what would you do? Yeah. And, and the surgeon was, was one of only two people who were doing it at the time in Maine, said I would go and get it. So that's what, that's what we did. And uh, when did you get the diagnosis from the time you went to the hospital? Quickly. I, well, in my head, it was quickly. I think it, it was probably an hour or so. I mean, it was, it was within a couple hours. Thank, I mean, thank goodness. Thank goodness that Maine Med is there. Thank goodness that they were doing this research that they were part of this study, you know, a lot of stars aligned. I think the surgeon was going on vacation the next day. I mean, it was, I was very fortunate. That and did the doctor it. explain what caused the stroke? He did. And, and and then I learned more, much more afterwards, right? Like when you dissect an artery, it's basically like a part of the inside of the artery kind of peels off. And, and so it doesn't, it's not severed, but it's sort of divided. And then blood can go into that pocket and form a clot. And that clot can sometimes be released. And so, you know, looking back, I had 
really severe neck pain after the baby was born. But I had a, you know, a husband that was finishing up cancer treatment. I had two little kids. I just given birth. Like, who cares if you have neck pain? You know, like I just, what was I going to say? Like, (laughs) my neck hurts. I'm going to be like, yeah, no kidding. You got a lot going on. (laughs) Right. Right. And I mean, when, so you got this treatment right away, how, how quick was that? And how long were you in the hospital? So that was another time where I thought it went very quickly. And my husband said, no, that procedure took hours. It was, you know, four hours or so, but I was awake for it. I wasn't completely under. So I was sedated, but I I could feel him rooting around in there. I could feel it when he pulled it out. Chris Baker was the surgeon. I remember thinking, oh, and he said, yes, I've got it. And then I was in the hospital maybe four days or so. When you left the hospital, you know, was it with sense of relief or, you know, did you also have, you know, anxiety and, you know, not sure what to expect? Yeah, both, right? Um, I obviously was thrilled to be going home and and thrilled to be going home without any, you know, deficits is the word they use after you have a stroke. You know, do you have any deficits? My speech was slurred for, you know, a, a a few days maybe after, and that came back. I didn't have any sort of lost pockets of memory. So I was, you know, very, very lucky. But you also go home now knowing that things like that can happen. And, you know, that was something that never even occurred to me would happen. And so now, you know, every sort of twinge, like, oh, well, my neck hurts. Or I ended up back in the emergency room multiple times in the month or two after my stroke, thinking it was happening again when it wasn't. But I think that's a part of stroke recovery or heart attack recovery that often doesn't get talked about, that anxiety that comes along with it afterwards. Sure. I think I think organizations are doing a much better job with that now and addressing the sort of mental side right. of the recovery, not just the physical. Because my physical recovery was, it was nothing. It was, I think I was grateful to have that be very easy. But the mental part's much more challenging. And I think also a lot of us tend to think, you know, stroke is something that happens to, to older adults, you know, in their 70s and 80s. But, but it is still a, a risk factor for, for younger people and for women. It is. It is. You know, and, and I had no idea, frankly, how um, prevalent it, it could be, you know, and, and didn't really know what signs to look for or symptoms to look for. And was very lucky that my husband didn't hesitate and immediately, you know, called call 911. But yeah, I mean, the level of gratitude I have for the research that was being done at Maine Medical Center and that the American Heart Association was doing, yeah, it's off the charts, right? I feel like I owe them certainly my quality of life. Right. Well, fortunately, you were in the right place. You got the right treatment. So let's now just take a very short pause and then we'll continue our conversation. This is Jennifer Cook of Norway Savings Asset Management Group. Here, we believe in family asset management. Simply put, it means we do right by you and your loved ones. And it's not necessarily the size of the portfolio we care about. It's the story behind it, a story that's unique to you. Let us help you write your next chapter. For more information, visit norwaysavings.bank. Investment products are not FDIC insured, not guaranteed by the bank, and may lose value. But you can't stay there, right? You can't dwell there, or I found I couldn't anyway, because that that can be a dark, scary place to, to dwell on. What if this and what if that? 
We are back talking to Amanda Rand, who was just telling us about having a stroke and getting that shocking diagnosis and then being able to go home, fortunately. Amanda, did anyone in your family ever have a history of stroke or cardiovascular disease? Yes, I guess cardiovascular disease. My grandfathers both died of heart attacks at a fairly young age. My grandmother, when she was elderly, had history of stroke and heart attacks, but it was not anywhere on my radar screen. I remember when you were telling me before that, you know, when you were in the hospital, I mean, you were still nursing your newborn. So that, did that add to the fatigue and the stress? It was awful. Um, Yeah. (laughs) The biggest symptom I had after the uh, procedure was just a crushing headache, just mind-numbingly painful. And so they had ice packs just on my head continually. They would just keep trading them out, trading them out, but they would get me up to pump my milk and then we'd have to dump it out which I almost you know cried every time because I wasn't a person who had like stores and stores of extra milk it was sort of it was like liquid gold we called it around our house (laughs) so it was devastating and then I when I came home by then you know my because I couldn't pump quite as enough it was Mm -hmm. well you probably can't nurse anymore and I just I was devastated and I was fortunate that my doctor at the time worked with a local pharmacy, a compounding pharmacy to give me some medication that helped my milk come back. And, you know, so things like that, it seems kind of silly in the whole scheme of things, but I was bonding with my newborn baby and, um, sure. you know, wanted to nurse her as long as I could. And, and she actually didn't tolerate the formula very well and she was tiny. So I, I was very grateful that all those people worked together so that I could get back to doing that. So tell us about the the treatment. I mean, you mentioned the study that was going on at Maine Med and that that was the the procedure that the- Yeah, now it's now it's really a standard of care to go up, you know, through your femoral artery and and take the clot out. So they have, you know, it's like a little basket on a claw that they take out and they put stents back in to push the dissection back, you know, against the wall so the artery would be wide open and I was on my way. So I have three stents in there. I get them checked Oh, at this point now every couple of years or so just to make sure that blood flow is good and everything's working as it should. Did you have to take any medication, any any other treatment, follow-up? Take a baby aspirin. Take a baby aspirin. I went to see the neurologist for a little while. And, and to your point earlier of this being not as uncommon as I thought it was, you know, I yeah. remember the neurosurgeon saying women who have the, you know, post-labor strokes, they do really well. Like that's like, it's a thing. You know, one of my classmates, her mother went through the same thing. You know, we found out after the fact. And you said your your speech uh, was slurred for for how long after? I think this? it was only a few weeks. I think it was okay. a few weeks. I felt it was fine, but I had close friends and my husband telling me that, well, he's still a little bit here or there. At this point, I don't think I can blame it on that. And you talked before about like, you know, the emotional um, fallout of this, you know, taking much longer, the physical recovery. It sounded like it was a a piece of cake. So tell us about that part of it. Yeah. As I said, I think much more is being done now to focus on the mental recovery from, you know, either a cardiac event or a stroke event. But I found myself, you know, just worrying all the time. So anxiety sort of off the charts. Is this happening again? Every twinge in my neck, every little ache or pain, or I would study in the mirror, like, is my face drooping? You know, if you have to study that much, it's probably not just for those out there. That are listening, but you're, you know, your mind can play tricks on you. And, you know, my mind is my whole thing. That's what I do. That's my career. You know, my mom 
would joke to me like people pay you to think amanda like you don't make anything you don't create anything you can't sew you can't cook these people pay you to think and it's true that's what i do and so to have that be threatened both my career but of course also my family life that's a lot that's a lot a scary thing and and how long before you went back to work so you were on maternity leave yes i i was on leave so i guess for better or worse, that that was actually nice. So I had planned to take three months with the baby. I ended up staying home four and a half. Uh, the folks at Spinnaker, you know, Sarah, Dick, everybody was wonderfully supportive and encouraged me to take whatever time I needed. So I did feel like by the time I got back, I had my strength back. I had my wits about me. I wasn't, you know, walking on eggshells, worried that this was going to happen all the time. I, I felt like I was in a much better place. At any point, did it, you know, it ever go through your head? What if I can't go back to work? What if I don't get better? What if I have another stroke? Yeah, it certainly did. I remember talking to one of our, one of my clients and he, he actually expressed that fear. He said, I can't even imagine how you're getting through the day. That's my worst fear. Like how it must've been awful. And, and yeah, certainly that went through my head, but you can't stay there, right? You can't dwell there or I found I couldn't anyway because that that can be a dark scary place to to dwell on what if this and what if that how did you you know were your kids also anxious for you too I mean both of their parents had gone through these these health scares how did you reassure them or talk to them yeah I think I did better in some ways than others my son who was you know nine at the time I think came through that relatively unscathed my my teenager now who was six at the time I think it really affected her a lot more than we thought I think she Mm -hmm. picked up on a lot more she was much more perceptive than we thought and she definitely had some of her own you know worries and fears about her her own health and so we had to constantly reassure her that these were yes these things did happen to mom and dad but these are incredibly rare even still and you know you are healthy as a horse and that's why we go to the doctor and that's why we eat well and that's why we exercise and yeah it's it's, it kind of stinks to be having those conversations with a nine and six-year-old right sure Um, yeah and and when you did go back to work what what was that like what was the first day like back at work well the first day back at work for any mom coming back from attorney leave is always you know a little bittersweet you're kind of back you're 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 happy to be back doing your thing and getting back into a groove but you're leaving your little one with whoever it is you're leaving them with. I've done it all. I've left, you know, our first one I left with a family member. Our second one went right to daycare. The third one, we had a nanny. So I've tried every which way. They all are hard. And, but then you get back into a groove and your family gets back into a groove. And, and as I said, the, the team at Spinnaker was, you know, incredibly supportive, but I also came right back into a merger happening. Right. So I had to meet all new colleagues. I had to meet all new clients. It was, it was a lot. There's a lot going and the on. office was still new at that point, right? Because the office space was right new. I mean, when I had left, I didn't even have a desk yet. I was still using a card table. Okay. <laughs> and so that was sort of pushed up against the wall. And we have these beautiful glass walls. The glass wasn't in yet, you know, so yeah, everything was new. And did you talk to your coworkers or some of your clients about what you had been through? My coworkers, for sure. I wanted them to know what was happening, what was going on. I wanted them to not to make excuses for myself, but just so they would understand where I was coming from and and what we had been dealing with. And did you make, did you have to, or did you voluntarily make any lifestyle changes after what you've been through? Mm. I'd like to tell you that like 
I went vegan and started running like marathons, but that, <laughs> that didn't happen. Mostly because, you know, my stroke wasn't the result of of a poor lifestyle to begin with. So no, I didn't make any, I didn't make any, you know, serious changes to my otherwise crazy life. And what about, you know, changes in your, you know, approach to your professional life? Because, you know, you did certainly progress at um, Spinnaker. You became principal in 2015, took the leadership role as president in 2018. Did this experience influence your approach to, to leadership in any way? You know, I think it it affected my entire life and my entire outlook on life, right? You know, events like this really put things into perspective and 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 drive home what is important. So I think as I as I interact with my teammates, with the people that I work with and I spend so much time with, I always try to appreciate and understand what's going on with them um, to the extent that they are sharing it. You know, I want to know what's stressing them out, what is making their lives more difficult, how Spinnaker can help, how we can make their situation easier. Because most of my coworkers, we've worked together for a really long time. Like we spend a lot of time together. We are, I know it sounds a little contrite, but we really are a work family. And we take a really long-term view with anybody that is on our team. You know, we're, we're, it's, I, and I felt that when I was going through my crisis. It was, you know, take the time you need. You know, we're hoping you're going to be here another 30 years. If you need five months, six months, whatever it is you need, just get well and get better and get stronger and come back. And I think I've tried to continue that and foster that in the Spinnaker that we have now, because, you know, Dick's mantra has always been, you know, our clients come first and that's guided our decision-making as a firm. It's guided everything from hiring to, you know, what technology we use, you know, what is going to make our clients' lives better and easier. And, and I would add to that, though, over the last few years, I would say the, our, our team comes first mm -hmm. as well. It's actually a dual imperative for me. You know, if we're not taking care of our team and if they don't feel seen and appreciated and valued for all that's going on in their lives, they're not going to be able to do good work for our clients. We'll take a short break now and then we'll, we'll wrap up the conversation. Maine Biz is Maine's business news source in print, online, and in person. We inform, engage, and connect you to the business community throughout Maine. Subscribe to Maine Biz products today at mainebiz.biz. And so I hope that the culture that we've all cultivated together of being there for each other and pinch hitting and stepping in and supporting one another, that makes it fun to spend so much time together. So we are back talking to Amanda Rand at Spinnaker Trust. Amanda, you had this, this stroke. It's now been over a decade ago. Do those anxieties or things still come up from what you went through back then? Very infrequently now at this point, you know, I'd say as I get older, I am starting to make more changes to my lifestyle in terms of exercising and taking care of myself and eating right. That's been happening more now than it was a decade ago, right after the stroke. And so I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't walk around with a fear of that anymore. Sure. And then to get back to, we, we touched on this um, before briefly that you know, you you certainly had to to learn a lot and and educate yourself about what you went through. But then you also got involved uh, with the American Heart Association and the the Go Red uh, for Women annual event. So just tell us briefly about that. Yeah, I was thrilled, uh, honored to chair that last year for 2021. It was 
it was virtual, unfortunately, but the this year it's going off live. And I just was so grateful for what I was able, the recovery I was able to have. So the combination, I also have joined the board at Maine Medical Center because I'm incredibly grateful for that institution and what they did for me and the research that's happening at the American Heart Association and the spotlight that they put on the health of women is just anything I could do to help that I felt I needed to do. So yeah, I was thrilled to be part of it last year and this year's as well. Great. And you touched on this a bit, but any other takeaways that you would share from this in terms of, you know, being a more empathetic business leader? I guess I just wouldn't discount how important empathy is to begin with. We talk all the time about understanding the motivations and the desires and the goals of the families with whom we work or the companies with whom we work, the institutions. And I would say it's just as valuable to bring those same skills to bear for the team that you're working with day in and day out. I think they can sometimes be sold as soft skills or I I don't, it doesn't really matter to me what you call them. I don't think you can ever, I think you can only help your organization by understanding, you know, what is difficult for your team, what challenges they're facing and seeing if there's any way that you can help. And so I hope that the culture that we've all cultivated together of being there for each other and pinch hitting and stepping in and supporting one another, that makes it fun to spend so much time together. I, I joke with our team all the time, like we used to be anyway, that we spend more time with each other than our families. Now <laughs> we're all home. <laughs> so it's not entirely that, that will come back maybe. But but we do. We spend a lot of time together. And to make that a, a respectful, you know, it, it, it's a hard driving place, right? We are, we are sure. doing hard work um, day in and day out and it's demanding and it is challenging. Um, but it needs to be done with respect and empathy all across the board. I just think it's, I think it's a, for me, it's a no brainer. This has been a production of Maine Biz. Find out more about this podcast and other Maine Biz media products at mainebiz.biz. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank and Maine Technology Institute, or MTI. The Maine Biz podcast team includes Renee Cordes, Will Hall, Allison Mason, and Andrea Tetzlaff. Audio editor and producer is Chris Sedanka. Logo and marketing design by Matt Selva. Subscribe to the Maine Biz podcast at mainebiz.biz or via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Copyright 2022.